Thanks for clicking play on this episode of PageCast. In today's chat, Mark Gefisser, editor of The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, is in conversation with activists Mark Haywood and Kumi Naidu, two of the contributors to the book. In The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, 25 of the world's most accomplished movement lawyers and activists become storytellers, reflecting on their experiences at the front lines of some of the most significant struggles of our time. In an era where human rights are under threat, their words offer both an inspiration and a compass for the way movements can use the law and must sometimes break it to bring about social change. The stories in this book capture the complex and often awkward dance between legal reform and social change. They are more than just compelling portraits of fascinating lives and work. They are revolutionary. Enjoy this chat. Welcome to this episode of Jonathan Ball's PageCast. My name is Mark Gavissa. I am veteran Jonathan Ball author. My books with Jonathan Ball include Tabo and Becky, The Dream Deferred, Lost and Found in Johannesburg, a memoir, The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. And the book I'm here to talk about today with two of its contributors, The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, People Power and Legal Power in the 21st Century which has just been published uh, internationally by OR Books and is distributed in South Africa by Jonathan Ball. Uh, With me are two of the contributors, both of whom are veteran and highly accomplished South African activists. The first is Mark Haywood, who has over three decades of experience in civil society in South Africa. He's founded or co-founded some of the country's most respected civil society organizations, including the Treatment Action Campaign, Corruption Watch, Section 27, and the AIDS and Rights Alliance of Southern Africa. Uh, He's been the deputy chair of the South African National AIDS Council, the chair of the UNAIDS Reference Group on HIV and Human Rights, and his books include the memoir Get Up, Stand Up, and the poetry volume I Write What I Fight. He's currently the editor of Maverick Citizen, where he publishes regularly. Welcome, Mark. Good afternoon, and I'm looking forward to the conversation, Mark and Kumi. Our other contributor is Kumi Naidu. He's an international activist who began his journey at 15, participating in South Africa's liberation struggle. He obtained a BA in political science from the University of Durban, Westville in 85, but was forced to flee the country in 87. In exile, he studied for a doctorate in political sociology from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. When he returned to South Africa in 1990, since then, he's been involved in a vast range of Initiatives for Social Justice, and was the Executive Director of the South African National NGO Coalition, and the Secretary General and Chief Executive Officer of Civicus. He's also worked on the global stage as Executive Director of Greenpeace International, Secretary General of Amnesty International, and Founding Chair of the Global Call to Action Against Poverty and the Global Call for Climate Action. His latest book is a memoir called Letters to My Mother, published by Jakana. Hi there, Kumi, and welcome. Hi, greetings, everybody. Maybe it's uh, worth me just saying at the beginning that I think all three of us are very uncomfortable with being on what they call manals these days, which is uh, panels with only men on it, but uh, looking forward to the conversation. I I agree with your um, discomfort, Kumi. There are 25 contributors to this book, The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, from all over the world, and uh, 60% of them actually identify as female. Just so happens that the um, two contributors from South Africa are both uh, cisgender men. 
<laughs> which is why we land up with Mark and Kumi on the South African podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about the book. The 25 contributors are, are 25 of the world's most accomplished movement lawyers and activists. And in this book, they become storytellers, reflecting on their experiences at the front line of some of the most significant struggles of our time. So we have contributors who have been part of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, or the movement for indigenous uh, rights in the United States. We've got Crystal Tubulls, who was one of the um, the defenders at Standing Rock against the oil pipeline. We've got contributors who are human rights lawyers from Lebanon, indigenous rights lawyers from Mexico. Um, we have uh, Jennifer Robinson, who is Julian Assange's lawyer. About half of the contributors are lawyers, and the other half, like Mark and Kumi, are activists. So we have abortion rights activists from Ireland and Poland. Uh, we've got a, a sex workers' rights activist from Kenya. Uh, we have got um, uh, 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 someone who has worked globally to fight uh, female genital cutting. Uh, the, we, we've got a human rights lawyer from Russia who talks about what it is like to be a human rights lawyer in Putin's Russia, where you don't have the rule of law. What brings all of these people together is that they have become storytellers themselves. We worked with them, my co-editor and I, worked with the principle that um, narratives are the lifeblood of the law as well as the lifeblood of social movements. And we use as our motto, it's actually on our cover, that it takes a lawyer, an activist, and a storyteller to change the world. Now, um, I think we might all understand how, how lawyers work to change the world. Uh, we might all understand how activists work to change the world. But what about storytellers? And why have we put storytelling into this mix? What I write in my introduction is that if the contributors to the, if the contributors to this book understand the power of narrative as a tool, they also explore it as a personal methodology. They start from the premise that theories of change are not designed in labs or seminar rooms, but rather come out of a reflection on practice. And so all these essays and interviews are personal reflections written as a counter to, or perhaps a companion to, the analysis of jurisprudence or the polemics of manifestos. This means that they are the tellers of their own stories too, as well as that of their clients or their movements. Mark, I'm going to start with you. Um, you uh, have pioneered the use of the law to build social movements in post-apartheid South Africa through the extraordinary work you did in the Treatment Action Campaign and specifically through the case that got all the way to the Constitutional Court that forced the state to give nevirapine antiretroviral medication uh, to pregnant mothers, and that kind of opened the door uh, to AIDS treatment in South Africa at a time when the state was refusing AIDS treatment. What do you think about the role of storytelling in bringing social movements and legal activism together? What has your experience been and what would you share? Well, social movements are made up of hot-blooded human beings, of human beings who believe in justice and equality and dignity, often human beings who are full of their own experiences and stories of struggles, of 
pain, of success, of humiliation, of exhilaration. By contrast, uh, in my experience, the law is very frequently formal and cold and clipped and clinical. And yet the law in the hands of social movements offers tremendous potential to advance freedoms and to advance social justice. And, you know, in the case that you've just referred to, Mark, uh, the Treatment Action Campaign case that I was a part of and which I partly write about in the book, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the use of the law saved uh, a million lives, prevented at least a million deaths. And I think that, you know, when it comes to storytelling, it's kind of incumbent on us to break this myth that this law is this impenetrable, uh, cold thing, and actually to show the people whose lives flow through and eventually shape the law. So the cases that uh, I've been fought in, that I have fought in, have been full of people's stories. And I think that it's important to tell those stories, to, to use the law to tell those stories, but also to tell those stories outside of the law. And I think that that is what this, this book that you have edited uh, succeeds in doing. You know, I must say, when you first approached us as authors to write chapters for this book, and the, and the first instruction was that, you know, it must be your personal stories. You must bring your personal perspective. You're not writing an academic paper. I think for many people, it was a bit of a shock to the system because they have been taught to, in a sense, make themselves invisible to these legal struggles. The book makes them visible, and I think it is all the more better for it. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a condition that I, that I diagnose in the contributors because I worked very closely with all 25 of these contributors that I diagnose as the Aaron Brockovich aversion syndrome. And for those of you who remember the film Aaron Brockovich, you know, she's this lawyer uh, who, 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 who acts on behalf of the people and kind of saves the world for them. And the story is her story. And most of the people I worked with um, have this Aaron Brockovich aversion syndrome because they don't want to be the center of the story. They don't want it to be their story. Uh, they want it to be the story of the people they represent if they're lawyers or the people they work on behalf of if they are movement organizers. Kumi, I think you've had some really profound experience of what it means to be a storyteller and a movement activist. Perhaps you can talk about that and, and talk about the power of telling your own story and also the power of, of using your voice because you have a platform to tell other people's stories. Maybe you can talk us through that a bit. Thank you so much, Mark. This question about the role of law in the struggle for justice confronted me as a young activist in 1983 in the township that I grew up in during a water fine struggle where there was water shortages and city council imposed terrible fines. But to cut a long story short there, we eventually, I was my first year law student. I was very much, I think we can win this in court. And an older activist said to me, hey, if we win it in court, whose victory will it be? Will it be the people's victory or will it be a bunch of clever people and lawyers? So 
the idea that I learned very young as a, in my late teens was building organization, building people's power, building uh, confidence is as important, if not more important than winning the court case. So using the court case to tell stories, because right now, for example, on climate, right, there are more than 450 cases of climate litigation that's taking place globally. Is that going to give us the breakthrough on climate? Probably not. But what it does do for every court case that is going on, it is offering opportunities to tell the story of climate change, the urgency of it, the need for us to get involved and so on. So the power of using the fact that a case can make it into court because you then have much larger capability to tell your story because mainstream media, establishment, so on, has to take you seriously. So I've seen that one of the problems we face today in the world, I would argue, the biggest problem of act activism faces is that we don't seem to be able to overcome the communications deficit. Now, the communications deficit has two challenges. One is the media infrastructure, who owns the media, state-owned, dominated, corporate-dominated media, and so on. So that's one real objective problem which we need to struggle to ensure there's more media diversity than what we have. But the second problem is how activists generally communicate. And I don't want to say everybody does this this way, but because we are trying to push for policy changes and so on, we tend to aim a lot of our work at the head, right? Very intellectual facts, figures, rationality, policy choices, and so on. But what we see from people like Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, his campaign manager, and so on, is that they ignore facts and ignore the head completely. And their narratives and their messaging is completely aimed at the heart. And that is one of the key challenges because stories appeal to people's hearts. It moves them to act, to think differently, and so on. If we try to sell things only through rational arguments, we are only able to shift an educated elite at the top, and that's not good enough. And that is why this synergy and convergence between the power of storytelling and the power of law must be brought together in the way that this book uh, sought to do. Can I just say finally, the fact that it's called the revolution will not be litigated is movement lawyers saying law in its own is not going to give us the big changes that we need. It has to be complemented by movement building, storytelling, narrative shaping, and so on. You've got a very powerful line in, in the interview I do with you in the book, Kumi, where you say that um, when I became involved in the environmental and climate movements, I began to think of the communicative power of law cases as I had seen happen in South Africa during the struggle. There are so many communication jewels that come out of a litigation that might ultimately lose in the court of law but win in the court of public opinion. And I think that's a profound observation. It's an observation that many contributors to this book make, that when you make the decision to go to court with a case, you're not necessarily expecting to win. So Felista Abdallah, the sex worker from Kenya, in her essay writes that she knows that when she does strategic litigation in Kenya to decriminalize sex work in Kenya, she has no illusions that she's going to win. She knows that she's going to lose, given the morality and the, and the law of Kenya. But her point is to use the case 
to put images of sex workers as mothers and as workers rather than as demons and as sinners into the public domain through the media that the law will attract. Mark, perhaps you can talk a little bit about how that has worked for you in the cases you've been involved in, and then Kumi, you too. I think that's exact parallels, uh, Mark, in the cases I've been involved in. If you take the treatment action campaign case that we've talked about briefly, you know, the TAC case, and I want to say something that when we're talking about law, we're not just talking about litigation. We're not just talking about those moments when we we go into court. We're talking about the whole process of building, of mobilizing, of collecting evidence, of going into communities, of getting affidavits, of teaching people about their rights and, and, and so on. But, you know, in the treatment action campaign case, it was that process that helped to destigmatize people living with HIV. People living with HIV were at the forefront of the TAC case. People living with HIV in their HIV-positive T-shirts seen in the court, deposing affidavits. And that challenge stigma, that challenge prejudice, external stigma and prejudice. But I'd also say that it's important that it, it helped people to fight their own internal stigma. It helped people to build dignity and to build uh, confidence. You know, I remember particularly certain young activists who were living with HIV, who at the start of the treatment action campaign case were incredibly broken and traumatized and hurt and incapacitated by their experience. But by the end of the court case, when we won in July 2002, they were strong, confident, determined rights bearers. So it is often about the coming out of shadows that society imposes on you, of people who are marginalized, stigmatized, and criminalized. Another example I can give you was a court case we were involved in around the little boy whose name was Michael Kamape, who fell into a toilet uh, at his school when he was six years old in Limpopo uh, uh, province and drowned at the bottom of that toilet in the, in the shit at the bottom of that toilet, not to put any fine point on it. And taking that case to court, taking the Department of Basic Education to court for damages because of their failure around duty of care helped to bring empathy and compassion. It helped to bring understanding to the lives of young children like Michael that are often tragically ended or tragically, tragi tragically harmed by state failure when it comes to duties such as education or health or, or other areas. So I do think that this is one of, its, uh, one of its great powers. And the critical thing about using law in this way is to put people at the forefront. You know, you said a minute ago, we shouldn't tell our stories. Well, I don't think we should be telling our stories too much. I think we should be making it possible for people to, whose, whose stories are denied to be seen and heard and, re and respected. I'll come back a little bit later to what your experiences have been telling your own stories and how you do use your own stories. As you were talking, Mark, I remembered something that another contributor to the book wrote. His name is Bahar Azmi, and he was writing about a case that he ran in New York um, which, which stopped the very discriminatory process of stopping and frisking by New, the New York Police Department of any young black male. And what Bahar writes is, 
that I want my day in court. I want my day in court is a powerful phrase that operates as a shorthand for transcendent social values. I want my day in court captures the basic human quest to tell one's story and to speak truth. Kumi, what are your reflections on that and how and how one might, um, even after having one's day in court, lose in court but win in the court of public opinion? What have your experiences of that been, either in the anti-apartheid struggle or on the global stage? Well, let me say firstly that there are people who say that we want our day in court, but actually don't really want the day in court. <laughs> uh, as we've seen uh, with uh, our political leadership here in South Africa, some of who are very corrupt, they say, I want my day in court, I want my day in court. Once they eventually get into court, they do everything to actually prevent it. I think activism has a different take to it, that people want the day in court really to have voice, to be able to tell the stories. And quite often, they, you know, as we, we've said, people's sense of whether they win and so on, ultimately, of course, we would like to win, and we do win more often than people give us credit for winning. But I just wanted to maybe just tell a story about when I was at Greenpeace, right? And when I started at Greenpeace, Greenpeace had a legal division that primarily spent its time on doing, you know, contracts to build ships and uh, and, and other activities, but mainly defending activists that went to prison. And of course, that was an important thing. I found myself in 2011 in prison in uh, Greenland. And while I was there, I thought, wow, these guys, the fossil fuel industry, you know, oil, coal, and gas, constantly do what is called slap suits. It's an important term. It stands for strategic litigation against public participation. So in a sense, when we're having this conversation, we need to know that those that are driving us to destruction are also using the law in very powerful ways. And the intention is not so much that they simply want to win the case, because quite often they know they're going to win, but they want to kill that resistance. And so they try to tie you up in you know massive and expensive court cases and so on. Jacob Zuma is doing right now, and when he says he wants his day in court, and and what he's doing with his, what he was doing with his litigation with uh, against Billy Downer and Karen Moore. So just to come back to your previous example, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's a it's a classic uh, slap suit, right? So then, so so prison can be uh, quite a nice experience for thinking especially when you're running a big organization. So that week I spent in Greenland, I came out with very much a sense that, hey, we need to start using, the, if they're using the law against us, we must try to use the law against them. And, and so the first case that we really tried to take on a big scale was after the Philippines had this horrific typhoon where thousands and thousands of people died, billions of loss in infrastructure damage and so on. And we partnered with the Philippine Human Rights Council and mobilized support. And that was, you know, the first case that was announced where we went after the largest, and the process continues, the largest fossil fuel company saying that they should be liable for the damage, you know, that the people were suffering. And, and of course, we haven't yet succeeded uh, with that. But I would 
conclude by saying, you know, we need to constantly remind ourselves that a lot of things that are legal today, right, and just because it's legal doesn't mean it mean it's correct. So we need to just quickly say denying women the right to vote, slavery, colonialism, uh, and and so on were all very legal. Apartheid was very legal in terms of the dominant legal system, but didn't make it right. So today, when we look at the current challenges that we face, the dominance of the pharmaceutical industry, the fossil fuel industry, and the military industrial complex might be legally allowed to do the damage that they're doing to humanity's capability to prosper on this planet. But we must just remind ourselves that legal does not mean necessarily ethical, moral, or right. Thank you for that, Kumi. As you're speaking, I, I'm thinking about the foreword by Jane Fonda. We were lucky enough to get Jane Fonda to, to write the foreword to this book, um, uh, in which she calls the book transformational. So it has Jane Fonda's stamp of approval. But what she writes in the introduction, and this speaks exactly to your point, Kumi, is that the book brilliantly sets out the three different paths for activists and lawyers to bring the radical changes we so urgently need. We activists can make the law through establishing precedent. We can also use the law to defend ourselves when it has been abused by the authorities to shut us down. And here's the third one. And of course, we can choose to break the law too. And in fact, one of our contributors, Farhana Yamin, is a, is a climate activist who spent decades inside the climate negotiations, making the laws that became the COP treaties. And in 2019, once the evidence became clear that, that states were really not doing what they needed to do to stop the cataclysm, to stop the, um, the catastrophe, she decided that what climate lawyers needed to do was break the law. Um, that, 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 that is another way when we speak about how social movements and legal advocacy work together. Another form of legal advocacy is, is civil disobedience. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I'd, I'd like to jump in on that one. I think that civil, if you look at what has moved struggles for justice in different epochs, different issues, it was when decent women and men said, enough is enough and no more. We're prepared to go to prison if necessary. We're prepared to put our lives on the line if necessary. And there is something very powerful about civil dis disobedience as a storytelling uh, sort of contribution because it's telling a story, hey, this person looks like, you know, clearly Mark Hayward doesn't need to do this, but he's risking it. He's putting everything on the line. So the fact that he's putting everything on the line kind of draws a contrast usually to those with state power and corporate power because they are behaving exactly in the opposite, self-serving, uh, corrupt, and all of that, right? And so the only thing that I have to say that, you know, it's very important that we understand civil disobedience as well as litigation are simply powerful tools in the activist toolbox. And what is the right tool to use is completely and always contextually defined. Like, say, for example, I'll give you a simple civil disobedience activity that I've seen happen. Like, uh, I don't know whether your listeners would be familiar with the term mooning. So, you know, mooning is when uh, a bunch of people get together and they paint one letter on their bum cheek and they pull the pants down and say, stop climate change, right? 
Now, that might work really well in Washington, New York, London, Paris, perhaps. It's not going to work as well in Saudi Arabia, in Indonesia, in Pakistan, and, and so on. I'm not sure quite how it will work in South Africa. We should try it here. <laughs> but always saying to yourself, what tool you use in a particular situation must be informed by a deep and thoughtful contextual analysis of what we find. And even on the use of law itself, because sometimes you might opt not to do a court case because you think actually it's going to use so much of resources, so much of time, and actually if we lose it in that particular context might seem as if it's a legitimation of the status quo, right? Uh, so the challenge with, with litigation is, even if you say we're going to lose and we know we can lose or there's a high priority we'll lose in court, you have to be able to say to yourself, but actually in the court of public opinion, we will win. But if you think you're going to lose in court and also you don't have the communications infrastructure to get you to win in the court of public opinion, then perhaps litigation in that particular contextual setting might not be the right thing to do. Your insistence on contextual analysis is, of course, absolutely critical. And I want us to conclude or move towards concluding by thinking about a contextual analysis of this current moment and the role that law plays in this current moment. Because, um, Mark, you in particular, in, in your contribution, express some doubts about the role of law. And I want to read something uh, that you write, some very powerful words you write, which is, I have a rising sense of panic about the climate crisis. Do we have time for the kind of incremental rights realization that happens through legal advocacy as cases move like treacle through overburdened or inefficient judicial systems? The law takes forever. We have a gun to our heads as a species, as a planet. How do you think about the law within that contextual analysis, Mark, at this moment? Well, we are living in a very, very complex, fraught, fragile, frightening period, as, as I said, Mark. What I write about in the book describes our use of the law in the early 2000s in South Africa, when things in some ways were very, very different. The economic economy was stronger. There was more direct respect for the constitutional court. When you won judgments, the government implemented judgments like the treatment action campaign judgment. You know, 20 years later, a lot of that has been turned uh, on, it, on its head. Uh, our state in South Africa is much weaker. It's much less capable of implementing orders of the court. In some instances, it's, it's much less disinterested. It's much more disinterested in implementing those judgments. And, and my argument to lawyers and to activists has been continually to say, at all points, we must think, where do we put our resources? Where do we put our emphasis? How much store do we put in the law? What is the role that we assign to law at this particular moment in time? But I would still say that law has a role to play. As Kumi said a few minutes ago, I think, I, I can't remember the number he said, but something like 400 uh, legal challenges going on around the world, around uh, the climate issues. That's a way of putting these things into the media. It may not be the way of bringing about the deep structural change that we are going to need to address the climate crisis, but it contributes in at least an incremental way in, uh, in, in driving forward 
uh, progressive uh, uh, change. So I will always argue for law. The only thing that I will say is that it must always be preceded by a discussion and an analysis amongst activists about what it can achieve at this moment in time. It shouldn't just become a fetish. Litigation shouldn't become a fetish. We always used to say in the days when I litigated that litigation was often a last resort, that we would turn to litigation when negotiation had failed, when persuasion had failed, when advocacy had failed, when we had built up a paper trail of correspondence and negotiation, and when we could go to the public and we could go to the courts and say, we have no option other other than now to place this before the courts for arbitration and resolution. Kumi, do you think we have time for for law and litigation? So I think Mark nailed it, right, in the sense that it all depends on your approach because I think it's important to just reflect that the challenge to avert catastrophic climate change and the struggle for climate justice is very different from most of the other struggles or all of the other struggles that we've engaged in, in one material way. So, for example, on gender equality or LGBTIQ justice and so on, on these issues, given how much of sacrifice, how much of efforts people have made over a long period of time, it's pathetic that we have the level of progress that we have, okay? But there isn't a clock that's in the center of the room saying, you got to get it done quickly. And the climate science, as well as extreme weather events, are telling us a very frightening story that... We are already at 1.2 degrees. The science says we need to be below 1.5 degrees. And we are seeing extreme weather events all over the African continent. In Durban, we saw we lost 500 people last year in two days uh, from extreme rains and so on. And so, so that factor needs to be there. So it's a little bit of a judgment kind of challenge here about how much of energies you put into litigation and how much do you put into civil disobedience, public communication, and other ways of mobilizing. Can I just make a pitch, though, for something that I think must be added actively in this conversation? And that is, let me put it graphically to say, harnessing fully the power of arts and culture to break through the communications challenges that we face on its own will not give us the kind of changes that we need to make. However, without harnessing the power of arts and culture, we don't stand a chance to actually address it. Litigation within the current context, given the timing, obviously court cases and the law is not where we need it to be on on climate, still fossil fuel industries, though they are having a criminal impact, behave in criminal ways and so on. Largely, they are getting away with using the law to advance the so-called legality of the actions. But I land in a place where we have to be thoughtful and considered and strategic in what we choose, when we choose litigation. But I wouldn't say that just because there's a clock that's ticking, we should rule it out completely. Because if the purpose of the litigation is winning in the court of public opinion, then that is the most important struggle we have, right? Trying to take the struggle of climate and its intersecting injustices to the people as a whole. And in that sense, if court cases help us do that, establish new law and so on, even if it's slow, 
it should happen, provided we're not putting all our eggs in the litigation basket. Kumi, I'm very glad you you spoke about arts and culture. Of course, um, storytelling is um, is a form of artistic practice and 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 a form of cultural expression. I was struck by, uh, firstly, Mark, you saying it's not our job to tell our own stories; it's our job to tell other people's stories. And then um, immediately after that, Kumi answering a question by using the I would say the narrative device of his own story, getting arrested in Greenland. His point there wasn't to kind of, you know, get some sort of kudos from us because he got arrested in Greenland. He was using that to as a narrative device to get us interested in the story so that he could be our guide into this territory as of how to use the law through that portal. So I want to ask both of you in conclusion, what you have learned about the struggle, about your struggle, about your engagement in other struggles by telling your own stories. I'm going to begin with you, Mark, and then come to you, Kumi. You, you ask us difficult questions, Mark. Um, I guess what I've learned about telling my own story is that every activist however dedicated and determined and self-sacrificing, has a beating heart and has dreams and hopes and also often uh, experiences pain and fears and setbacks. And every activist has a story to tell. And telling that story is a way of building bridges to other activists and to other communities and also a way of showing your own humanity. You know, you mentioned when you were introducing me at the beginning of this book that uh, I wrote a memoir published in 2017 uh, called Get Up, Stand Up, Personal Journeys Towards Social Justice, which you were one of the the readers of. Uh, And really, that's my story. And a huge amount of that story is actually built around the court cases that we fought, the legal activism, the -the on-the-streets activism, it became a story in itself. And it is worth telling that story, because I think that it will inspire current and future generations of activists and remind people that at the end of the day, it's not automatons that dream of justice and civilization and beauty and equality. It is actually uh, human beings with feelings themselves. That's not a very clever way to end that comment, but you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I think, you know, it's important that those of us who get thrown up into leadership roles in the movement for justice, whatever that specific focus might be, we must always have a mentality that we are servants of those struggles for justice. Our, whenever I found myself in a leadership role, I have found you know, very much a sense of saying to myself, this is a huge responsibility, a huge sort of burden, and and it's a privilege to be there. But sometimes I think when I look at how the mistakes I have made in my activism, uh, and, and the Greenland example that you just referred to is a good one, where, you know, um, we forgot the storytelling element when we executed that action, right? Where 
you know, the, the placard said stop Arctic destruction in 2011 when people didn't understand at that time that the Arctic serves as a refrigerator and a air conditioner of the planet, if you want. And when I came out of prison, a young member in my family member said to me, Uncle Kumi, what a stupid slogan. Stop Arctic destruction. Nobody understood what you were talking for. And I said, okay, darling, what would be a better slogan? And she said, save Santa Claus now. Right? Now, now if you think about the brilliance of what this child was telling me, he's like, you folks who are activists are often projecting your consciousness on the people that you're trying to organize. But a good organizer is one who seeks hard to understand where people are at. And if the majority of people in the global South, for example, their only association with the Arctic is the fact that Santa Claus is chilling there, uh, <laughs> then, then deal with it. You know, and in fact, I was even told, and I agree with this, that the action would have had much better impact if I dressed up as Santa Claus and, and climbed the, the oil rig. Now, why I tell the story is also for us not to be afraid to do things that are different. So my main message that I've kind of learned, if you want, is, is something that Albert Einstein once said when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. If I'm brutally honest, my life probably fits that definition of insanity. And the reason I'm putting so much of effort now in the whole area of promoting and energizing artivism, bringing arts, culture, and activism together, is because I feel that the biggest challenge we face is how can we communicate to the largest numbers of people as fast enough the urgency of this moment of global history that we find ourselves in, where the planet is and the climate crisis is just running away, as well as then we see you know, the rise of fascism, the rise of gender discrimination and all of that. So for me personally, I think law has helped keep me out of prison at different moments and I'm grateful for that. And I think that, that right now, the greatest thing that we can do for those of us who find ourselves in leadership is to speak like human beings, speak in the way that ordinary people speak and make sure that what we say can resonate beyond political elites of whatever sort. Thank you. And that means that means telling your own story too, towards the end of showing how you've learned from your mistakes in exactly the way you described. It, it kind of humanizes leadership and creates a, a story with which those people you are communicating with can identify too. So I think in, in, in that way, you, you help answer the question about what value you see in telling your own story too. It's not that you, your primary objective is to tell your story, but if telling your story can help achieve your aims as a movement organizer or an activist, then, then you see the power of that, right? Yes. And, and let me just say that if I look at my former comrades in the ANC, when they tell their stories, it's all about defending the indefensible today, but also overinflating their own personal roles in how we move from one point to the other. And I think that the way we tell our stories should be infused with humility, uh, should be laced with humor, that should be brutally honest about the mistakes we made, 
and to tell those stories in a way that also sends a message to the younger generation, hey, nobody knows exactly how what we need to do in this moment of history. So feel free to make mistakes, feel free to take risks, because risk-taking in this current moment is going to be a critical success factor if we're going to have the kind of big structural and systemic changes that we need to secure humanity's presence on this planet. Thank you so much for that, Kumi. And thank you too, uh, Mark Hayward. It has been a, a real privilege for me to have been able to work with the two of you and with the 23 other activists and movement lawyers across the world who've contributed uh, to this book. Uh, we had another um, endorsement on the book from Greta Thunberg. Uh, and, and what she wrote after, after reading the manuscript before it was published, that, that is that this book is a roadmap for doing what is often considered to be impossible, but necessary. The contributors are the true leaders that the world needs to listen to and follow. So that was Greta Thunberg. Uh, Van Jones, uh, an, an American human rights lawyer and, and movement activist, and also CNN commentator, wrote that the book is written with passion, joy, and wisdom a collection of beautiful personal essays by powerful people who have figured out what it takes to shift power and win. Uh, I endorse that endorsement. I, I think these stories are great reads for anybody, uh, whether or not they are lawyers or movement activists, anybody who's interested in, in social justice and, and in the issues that these contributors work on. So I urge you to buy the book. It's called The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, People Power and Legal Power, in the 21st century. It's edited by Katie Redford and myself. It costs uh, 405 Rand and it's available at all good bookstores online and off. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.